and welcome to another edition of Detroit Today here on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm always glad that you've decided to join us. We are coming up on the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. On May 5th, 2020, a white Minneapolis police officer named Derek Chauvin pressed his knee into the back of Floyd's neck for more than eight minutes, resulting in Floyd's death. That murder was caught on tape and distributed widely on social media. And, of course, it sparked months-long protests across the world, demanding an end to police brutality and racism in law enforcement. Last month, Chauvin was convicted on charges of second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. And a judge is going to determine his sentence next month. But the conviction of one police officer doesn't reflect systemic change. Almost one year ago, as protests started gaining traction here in Detroit, we talked with Jelani Jefferson Exum, a University of Detroit law expert on policing and race. And this month, she was appointed as the law school's new dean. And she joins us now to continue this conversation on law enforcement and race and her assessment of how far we've come in the last year. Jelani Jefferson Exum, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I really and appreciate it. Of course, first of all, congratulations on the promotion. That is a very big deal. Uh, talk a little about what this position will mean in terms of bringing these conversations about race and policing to the forefront here in Detroit. Yeah, th- well, you know, thank you for having me, and, and I'm really excited about this new role and this new opportunity. I am honored, really, to be the first African-American dean at Detroit Mercy Law School, and I think that's really important in this moment given the type of work that I do and the perspective that I bring, um, it really fits with the overall social justice mission of Detroit Mercy, the university, and also the law school. And so I think this is really just a time where the school is ready to to really strengthen and deepen its social justice commitment. And I'm looking forward to being able to, to really just lead the school in um, – the direction that I think this moment really calls for, which is paying attention to our community needs, being responsive, and really training our students to be justice-seeking and community-facing attorneys. That community work and the, the sort of community roots for the teaching of law students is a really important dimension of the education that, that students get at, uh, at U of D Mercy in this time, in this time, in this sort of uh, uh, transition, I guess that I feel like we're in between uh, a world where we were pretty aware of of racism and inequality, uh, but where everyone, I think, is a little more starkly aware of it now. Talk about what kinds of things are shifting at the law school, you know, in terms of that community idea and focus. Yeah, I think that the murder of George Floyd on such a really national, international stage just really put this issue right in front of so many people's faces that it couldn't be ignored. And so what we saw happening last summer and throughout the year, and Detroit Mercy Law really also joined in on this, is making commitments to being anti-racist, to you know dealing with issues that are going on in our community, but also within our own institutions. 
So making sure that we are looking at ourselves and thinking, are we really being anti-racist institutions where we're creating diverse environments that are inclusive, um, that we have equitable policies, and that we then give back to our communities so that we can help to amplify voices of our community members who've had marginalized voices. I think that's really what this moment has been calling for, what a lot of institutions have been pledging themselves to doing. And so at Detroit Mercy Law, we're definitely taking that to heart and really looking at our own policies, looking at the way we teach our students, and making sure that we're actually advancing the work of anti-racism, of racial equity, um, in a really intentional way. Hmm. So I'm excited about that. So as I mentioned in the open, the last time we had you on the show was in June of last year. And that was just as the protests in response to the George Floyd murder were really taking shape, especially here in in Detroit and gaining steam. Uh, let's, Let's fast forward from that point to this one where Derek Chauvin has uh, stood trial for what he did and been convicted on three counts uh, of manslaughter and and murder. Uh, how significant is that conviction in, in, in your eyes uh, in, in changing the way that uh, police and uh, citizens interact and particularly police and, and citizens of, uh, of, of color? You know, I don't want to downplay the importance of the convictions in those cases, in that case. I I think it's hugely important. We have a history in this country of not holding police officers accountable when they use force excessively, when they use when they use deadly force unnecessarily. And so that in that way is extremely important. But I also say that we can't have it. We can't sort of think of this in an overblown way. This is one case that. Um should have come out the way that it came out. We all watched. We saw with our own eyes Doug Chauvin murder George Floyd. And so we should have expected convictions. And I think it's important to note that so many of us were really on the edge of our seats, awaiting the verdict, unsure of how it would turn out, because we're so used to police officers not being held accountable in this way. And so while it is a big deal, it is hugely important. It is one case within a larger system where we really have to deal with overall police accountability, with police community relationships, with really thinking about um, and talking to community members about how they'd like to have their interactions with police actually occur. Um, and so really rethinking how we approach policing. And so this moment, these, um, this guilty verdict gives us a chance to say, okay, we did have the right outcome in this case, but we can't stop with one case. Mm. And, and we also can't significantly change policing in this country through criminal cases against police. We have to do more systemic policy and regulation changes. So, so one of the things that I, th- I think is significant in the, the, the Chauvin con- conviction is the messaging that, that it, it, it sort of implies, uh, you know, as you point out, police officers almost never stand to account for the kind of thing that that Derek Chauvin did, let alone face, you know, real consequence for what they're doing. And I, I feel like in the wake of that, we're starting to see, I, I think we're starting to see more of that accountability uh, be discussed and and maybe more prosecutors thinking that 
they ought to be holding police accountable in that way. Um, and you're right that, of course, that's not the policy change that, that prevents police from doing this in the first place. Uh, but but what's, what about the potential deterrent effect? I mean, uh, Derek Chauvin's life, uh, for better or worse, uh, is pretty much over uh, for, for what he did. And, and I mean, that, that's probably a uh, a bit of an exaggeration, but I mean, there's going to be such a severe penalty in this case. Does it send that message to other police officers that, you know, you're not just going to get away with this and that that if you behave this way, the consequences may be far greater for you than 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 you would imagine? Yes. And I mean, I think that the deterrent effect is real. And that is really part of the point of our criminal justice system. It's why we hold people accountable for acting outside of the law. You know, part of that is the hope that not only it deters them from committing criminal offenses in the future, but that it also will deter others. And so, so that's real. And again, I don't want to downplay it, but I actually think that we do police officers a disservice if we just count on um, convictions as deterrence without changing policy, changing regulations, changing expectations, so that we are actually supporting police officers in the work that we want them to do. Mm. So the criminal cases send the message that you can't just sort of extrajudiciously kill people. Um, you know, I've, I've done work here calling it the death penalty on the streets. So you can't do that, and you will be held accountable. And so that, of course, is important. But we also need to be telling police officers and, and talking with police officers and training police officers in other tactics and techniques, um, in thinking about de-escalation, in thinking about partnering, say, with mental health services when that's appropriate. And then we also need to put our resources into other avenues for citizens to turn to when they have issues. Right now, if something happens in your life um, where you feel like you um, are either in danger or need assistance, all you know to do is to call 911 mm-hmm. because we haven't built out the appropriate, really, responses and resources. And so we need to spend time investing there. And so while I do think it's important and I do hope that prosecutors will be more and more open to holding officers accountable when they use excessive force, that's just really one bite at it. And we really need to look at the systemic change because at the end of the day, you know, people say that there was justice for George Floyd. And of course, the, um, the backlash against that term justice is to say no true justice would be that he was never killed in the first place. And so, you know, the criminal justice system is reactionary. Once something has already happened, we need to focus on being proactive and really changing our systems and changing our approach to policing. I'm talking with Jelani Jefferson Exum. She is the new dean of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Uh, She is an expert expert in policing and uh, race. We're talking about Kind of this moment and the long and difficult narrative uh, of policing and uh, violence uh, by, committed by police officers against uh, people of color in particular uh, in this country. And, and whether, given the conviction of Derek Chauvin, a former Minneapolis police officer for the murder of George Floyd, you know, whether we're headed in a different direction, a more productive direction in terms of police reform and accountability for uh, police when they when they misbehave. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, do you feel like we're making real progress toward addressing racism in policing and police brutality? 
Uh, do you feel like the last year has marked significant progress uh, on those fronts? Uh, what do you think of the Black Lives Matter protests? What do you think those achieved? And what would real police reform look like to you? What are the things we ought to be focused on uh, changing about uh, policing in, in America? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, or and we will try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Before we get to uh, listeners, uh, I, I want to ask about the the phrase defund the police, which has gained a lot of power in this last year as we've talked about reforming policing. What do you make of that phrase? What do you make of the idea of uh, substantively remaking policing in, in America as opposed to thinking about reform? Uh, you mentioned uh, already the idea that uh, we, we might do better as a society if we were thinking of more than just police response to uh, emergencies and and different ways to deal with with problems in the community. But but what about this idea of of defund the police? Yeah, I, I understand that people. Um, there are people. I won't say everyone, but there are people who are very uncomfortable with that notion of defunding the police. And I think that it's important to just understand what's meant by um, by that term. And, you know, I'd just like to invite folks who are uncomfortable with it to think about it slightly differently. So um, those who are advocating for defunding the police, the, um, the thinking really is about reinvestment. Um, police budgets tend to be large, considerably larger than many other aspects of, of state and local budgets that you might think um, should have more money, like if you're thinking about things like education and um, mental health services and things like that. And part of that is because of what I said before, which is that we depend on the police to do so much. And so in thinking about defunding the police, the thought is really shifting resources to really build out these other types of services that can be more properly responsive to the types of issues that people may have in their communities that don't always require somebody with a gun to show up um, to that situation. And so, um, and so defunding the police is really focused on that. And so what I'd invite folks to do who are concerned or who um, sort of are uncomfortable with that term of defunding because they think, well, you're going to strip all the resources away from the police and then none of us will be safe, is really just think about what you need police for. Try to identify those specific areas where you need police and, um, and think about defunding as saying, okay, we'll continue to fund areas where I think policing is necessary to the extent that you do. Now, there are folks who, who are more police abolitionists, but if we're thinking about just re reinvestment and you think, what do I really need police for? Maybe um, to come out when there's an imminent violent situation happening. Um, but when there's been, let's say, um, you know, something that's already occurred, uh, perhaps there's another sort of approach. What if there's somebody with a mental health issue? Um, what if there's someone um, who's a juvenile who needs to be dealt with differently? But there can be other specialists, other professionals who are brought in and not the police. And so the police budget, defunding the police, means taking police budgets from um, where they sit now and reinvesting into these other areas that will be more responsive to actual community needs. Mm. So I'm quite comfortable with that concept. 
when it's understood in that way. Some people use a different term um, called unbundling hmm. the police. Hmm. And um, what that means, again, is, you know, thinking that the police can't be the response to everything. You know, we can think about the, the stories that have emerged, the sort of, you know, hashtag living while black stories that have emerged of, um, you know, families in parks having the police called um, against them, you know, the dog walker, all of those sorts of stories, the students sleeping in the Yale dormitory and having the police called. All of these are situations where police really should never be an appropriate um, group to turn to, um, even if you think that there's some situation that warrants a response. These were not emergency situations, needing someone to be called out immediately to deal with the situation. And we've used police in that way. And so unbundling says that um, we really kind of pull apart these different functions and we put them in their appropriate place. Some things can just be reported um, and to be investigated later. There are some things that need to be dealt with immediately, but not necessarily by police. So just really rethinking what do we need and how do we want um, those needs to be met? And I, I bet when, when many of you think about it that way, you'll find that calling the police is not really, does not really get you to where you want it to go in that situation. It's just the only avenue you need to take. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Jelani Jefferson Exum, who's the new dean of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. We're also going to get to your calls and your comments. Ed in Detroit, Daniel in Detroit, Elena in Detroit. We'll hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Jelani Jefferson Exum. She's the new dean of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. We're talking about Policing and race in America is something she's an expert on. And uh, where we go from here with the conviction of Derek Chauvin, former Minneapolis police officer, for the murder of George Floyd. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think uh, of the conviction of Derek Chauvin, what direction you think it sends us in this ongoing conversation about changing policing. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, let's start with Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to the show. Uh, Dean, first, uh, let me congratulate you on your appointment. Uh, but a number of decades ago, the United States Supreme Court created the doctrine of qualified immunity as it applied to lawsuits against certain government employees in particular, well, most most often police officers. Uh, some states, I mean, one or two, have, have legislatively declared that qualified immunity won't exist in their law. And yesterday or day before, the conversation seemed to heat up here in Michigan when the press announced that Chief Craig of Detroit 
thinking of running for the Republican nomination for governor and that he has indicated he is opposed to um, um, abolishing qualified immunity. If you could take a moment to discuss what the doctrine is and what, if any, changes you would like to see the courts or the legislature make in the doctrine or whether you'd like to see the courts or legislature abolish the doctrine, I'll listen to your comments on the radio. Ed, thanks very much for the call and the really great question. Uh, Jelani, go ahead. So qualified immunity, it's, it's, you can think of it as a judicially created doctrine, so courts sort of made this up. Um, so it's a doctrine that will shield government officials. So it doesn't only apply to a police, but any to police, it's any government official, any government agent, um, from being held liable, personally liable for constitutional violations. So it protects police officers from civil suits. So it doesn't have to do with criminal um, uh, criminal cases against the police, but it has to do with civil suits. So, for instance, if someone in your family were, um, if they were um, you know, abused by police officers and you wanted to bring a case of excessive police force, a claim of excessive police force against them to get money damages, under federal law, um, you would have to sort of get over that qualified immunity shield. And so what it does is it basically says that you, um, that government officials are free from civil liability so long as the officials didn't violate any sort of clearly established law. And that's really where the problem lies in the way the courts have interpreted what clearly established law means. So basically, unless there's a court case that already has your exact fact scenario in it, then officers are able to say, I didn't know that what I did clearly violated or violated clearly established constitutional protections. And, um, and so you can understand how that would be very hard for someone to file a suit against a police officer because you have to find a case that shows, no, look, you did this exact thing to me that courts have already said you can't do. And when I say exact, I mean down to the facts. You know, you put my hands behind my back with handcuffs in this same manner that the court said you couldn't do. So that's very difficult. And so I'm actually, I'm very glad to see legislation that is um, kind of reigning in qualified immunity. I think it's gotten much broader and become a much broader protection than was ever intended. It was really just meant to allow police officers to do their work, to do their job without fear of um, constant suits against them. But it's gone on to protecting police officers in situations where I think many of us would say, okay, that's gone too far. Because in order to to um, attack it in court, you have to find a case exactly like it that the court has already said is um, is a violation of the constitutional law. So I'd like to see it reined in. I'm um, I'm supportive of qualified immunity reforms, and I think that um, that's another place we talked already about the criminal justice system being used as a deterrent to um, excessive police force. So civil liability is another place where that. Um, that could work as well. And I'll just add one other point about that. Because a lot of police departments have insurance against these, uh, and cities have insurance against these, um, these uh, sorts of excessive police force suits, the civil cases don't do so much to deter individual police officers, but they can do a lot to, um, to sort of, um, I guess, facilitate or, or push for policy changes so that um, cities don't have to pay out in these, um, you know, through their uh, their funds to cover these um, sorts of civil suits. Mm. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, no, no, no. That's a that's a really rich and full answer. 
Uh, again, Ed, uh, thanks very much for the call and, and the really great question. Let's go to Daniel in Detroit. Daniel, what's on your mind? Oh, thanks for having me on the show again. You know, um, I'm, I'm a little concerned about the lack of coverage um, on the what is the what's the reason why all of these men have been murdered by police? The number one thing is they've been resisting arrest. So what percentage of it is of these people that have been murdered by police started with resisting arrest or fist fighting with the police or driving their cars at police? OK, so. There, yes, there's excessive force. And let me also say that my mother was married to a black man, and I've been taught my whole life that people are people, and skin color does not matter. But I am a true independent. I watch Fox News every day, but I only watch the, the 6 o'clock report with Brett Baer, which is they bill it as fair and balanced. And I also watch the CVS Evening News at 6.30 every day. I record it. I skip the, the garbage. But hear me out. The coverage that's been going on in the mainstream media of all of these murders is extremely slanted. And I'll give you an example. Mr. Brown, that was just murdered a few weeks ago, had his hands on the wheel. That's what the mainstream media and the family told the world, that he had his hands on the wheel when he was shot in the back of the head. Well, the chief of police came out three days later and said, yes, he had his hands on the wheel because he was driving his car at the police officers. Mm. He he was a convicted. So, so Daniel, I don't want to hold on. Hear me I, out. I don't want to mean to cut you off, but I do yeah. want to be able to get to, to respond uh, to what you're saying. I think we get the gist of, of where you're going. And uh, look, uh, it's very frustrating. Um, but the idea that resisting arrest or not obeying orders from police or even threatening police officers is sufficient predicate for murdering somebody, I think is, is at the root of the problem in, in policing. Policing in this country assigns a kind of menace and threat to black skin that it doesn't assign to others. I mean, if you think of George Floyd, I mean, the crime he was committed, he was accused of committing was passing a phony $20 bill. How does that become, how does that become an altercation with, with police? How does it escalate to the point where you've got to put him down on the ground and put your knee in his neck? It's only in through the lens of, you know, the, the 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 menacing nature of black people that 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 can be justified. And Daniel, I really appreciate you listening. I really appreciate your calling. And look, I appreciate your perspective and and the way that you say that you're trying to keep an open mind about these things. But I think you got to ask yourself why you are ready to accept that interpretation of these things. Does that make sense? And, and, yeah, and may, I, may I add um, a, another sort of invitation to think about about this, um, is that let's back up the clock. So rather than looking at the moment when officers an officer decides to use force um, and, you know, sort of thinking about, well, what was the individual that they used force against doing right at that moment? Let's back up the clock to why there was the interaction in the first place 
And um, is that a situation where we really need to have the police presence? Because once police enter a scene, that already elevates tension on both sides. You have someone um, with, with a weapon who's empowered to use it. You have an individual who's, of course, going to be frightened, um, who is going to, you know, perhaps not react in a way that the officer is going to perceive as, um, as being appropriate. All of that stuff happens when um, the police are on the scene. So, you know, my invitation is to think about it as, you know, as, as sort of lessening these interactions, so that we lessen the opportunity to have these dire, deadly consequences. And if we think about it that way, then we can think about these stories of, you know, okay, passing a counterfeit $20 bill. How can that be dealt with other than pulling, you know, calling police who'll come, you know, with guns drawn? Um, what else can we do? And I, and I also would say, I also would encourage listeners to um, take some time to educate yourselves on statistics, on the use of force. And so um, I appreciate the question about how much of this is, is, um, you know, people who are not complying. There are statistics now that will show you what's happening when use of force is used. But what you're going to see in those statistics is that even just police officers approaching um, individuals, it happens to people of color, in, in especially in, in urban areas, 60, 70, 80 percent of stops, frisks on the street are of black people, and they're not yielding any significant number of, you know, weapons and drugs. They're usually fruitless. And so I think that's where we need to start is can we cut back on these interactions that are based on perceptions of criminality due solely to race um, rather than focusing on that moment when police officers use deadly force? Mm -hmm. Back up the clock and think, why are we allowing these interactions that are coloring people's everyday lives and not letting them just live as free individuals enjoying their lives safely like anyone else? Yeah, yeah. Well said. Uh, Jelani Jefferson Exum. Uh, new Dean of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Great to have you back on the show, and congratulations again. Yeah, we'll talk with you soon. Thank you. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk with historian and author Neil Ferguson about the nature of catastrophe in the context of the last year and more broadly throughout history. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Detroit Today. 